Thank you for bringing us to this passage. Lord, we ask that you may speak through my lips to your people to proclaim the word of God. Lord, help us to behold the glory of Christ and the glory of God in Christ through your word. May we see him in this passage and may we behold him as God in his glory. And Lord, like Peter, may we behold him in repentance and faith and come out of this hearing of your word, Lord, committed to following you. Lord, we are in the need of, of your spirit to speak to us. I ask that you may come and speak and, and bless the proclamation of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Vince, if you're able, would you mind to turn the camera on? Just open it up. It's, it's good. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Today, we're going to study a passage that's very familiar from, from Luke chapter 5. We know the story. Jesus gets into a boat with Simon Peter, and they experience a miraculous catch of fish. And then Jesus calls him to follow him. Maybe we've seen pictures of this or, or paintings on the walls of a Sunday school with this image of Jesus and Simon and some of his partners and this big boat full of fish. So it's very familiar. We're, we're very comfortable with this story. It's a very pivotal passage in Luke's Gospel, a pivotal event in the life of Peter, because it is in this story that Jesus reveals himself to Peter in such a way that Peter is willing, after this event, to leave everything that he has and embark on a life of following Jesus. Now, if we want to look at this passage within the context of Luke's gospel, it's important to know the purpose for which Luke wrote his gospel. And he gives us the answer in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where he says that he wrote his gospel so that you may have a certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this is... Uh, important to keep in mind as we look at this passage. The purpose of Luke's gospel is so that as we read it, we may be sure that what we've been taught about Jesus is true. So here in this gospel, throughout the whole gospel, Luke has recorded for us events in the life of Jesus' ministry that unmistakably testify that he is the Christ, that he is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And the whole of Luke's gospel testifies to this. But if we were to take one chapter that really brought out this truth, we could pinpoint the chapter that we're at today that reveals the identity of Jesus as God and describes attributes of his divine person. This story, even though it is a familiar story, is a lens through which the divinity of Jesus Christ and all the glories of his person are brought into focus. We see several attributes of his person in this passage. We, we see that Jesus is the God of truth. He, he's teaching the people. He speaks to them the word of God. We see that Jesus is the omniscient God, the God who knows all things, who has a perfect knowledge of everything, even created things. We see that he is the omnipotent God, who has power over everything, and the sovereign God, Sovereign God, who has authority over everything. That he is a holy God. That sinners are flabbergasted and brought low in his presence. And that he is also the merciful God, who pardons sinners, mercifully forgives them from their sin, and then uses them in his kingdom. But before we jump into the story, it's helpful to back up a little bit and 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 see what were the events that brought Jesus and his disciples to this point. If we look back at Luke chapter 4, Jesus began his public ministry in the area of the Galilee. And he began by teaching in the synagogues. You remember at Capernaum, he went in. And then he opened up the, the book of Isaiah and he read that portion of the passage. And then after he read it, he said, this is now fulfilled in your hearing. And he taught with authority. And he demonstrated his authority by casting out demons and, and by healing the sick. And in response, the people marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They were astonished by his authority. They spread reports about him. Come on. Everybody, come on, see Jesus. He'll be healed by Jesus. All the sick, 
all the ones who were demon-possessed came from the surrounding regions, flocked to him, and in Luke 4 it says they even tried to force him to stay with him, but, but Jesus wouldn't stay. He kept on going from city to city, teaching in the synagogues, people's homes, uh, preaching the gospel, and healing the sick, casting out demons. And in the process of doing this, Jesus was also calling them to follow him as his disciples. At this point, Philip, Andrew, James, John, Nathaniel, and also Peter, uh, and a few others, were among the ones who were following Jesus. But at this point, in, in the early part of Jesus' ministry, the disciples were not following him all the time. It was kind of sporadic. They, they would follow him sometimes, and then other times they would be involved in their, um, their, their, their occupation, which for most of them was fishing, and, and that's what Peter was also doing. And so that brings us to verse 1. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And of course, the he here is pointing to Jesus. This is a, a non-specific time, just one occasion, within the preliminary period of Jesus' ministry. But it tells us that there was a crowd, and, and in fact, there was a huge crowd that was following him. Luke 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 40 says that everyone in the region who were sick and diseased went to Jesus. If it was nowadays, that would be most of us because of the flu season. Chapter 5, verse 19 says that, that the crowds were so big, there was no way to get to Jesus except to put a hole in the roof in the room in which he was standing. That's how monstrous this crowd was. They were pushing in on Jesus, driving in, pushing closer, striving to get closer in order to hear him speak. And he was by the edge of a lake. That, that's kind of dangerous. You know, if you're by the edge of a lake, you don't want people driving in and pushing at you. It's, you know, risky. And so in verses 2 to 3, it says that Jesus saw boats that were by the lake, and the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus gets a little practical. He gets into Simon's fishing boat. He asks Simon, please push out a little bit from the land. And he sits down and he begins to teach. And by doing so, he, he's turning this boat from a boat into a pulpit. And then the people can see him better. They can hear him better. They're not going to push him into the water. He, his voice gets amplified a little bit as he speaks, as it bounces off of the water. And, and it makes for a better situation for him to teach. Um, let's look again at verse 1. Notice in verse 1, it says that the people were pressing in to hear the word of God. It, it's interesting. It doesn't say the people were pressing in to hear the words of Jesus. But it says the word of God. Why is it that Luke writes the word of God? The words that Jesus was speaking to the people was nothing like the sermons that they were accustomed to listening to in their synagogues. The rabbis in their synagogues pontificated and eulogized and, and argued and debated and fancied and speculated, but they didn't speak with authority. And the words that they spoke were their own words, their own ideas. But Jesus was speaking totally different from them. He spoke with authority and he spoke to them God's word. Even when he read the scripture, he would read it. And then afterwards he would say, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. He himself is the word of God, the word of God incarnate. And he spoke to them the word of God. And so th this is the first attribute of Jesus' divine nature that's present in this passage. It's here right at the beginning. It says clearly that, uh, that Jesus is God the Son, and he is the one who speaks the words of truth, the words of God. In John 8, Jesus said that he doesn't speak on his own, but he declares what he has heard from the Father, that he speaks just as the Father has taught him. Moreover, he said in John 5, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me will pass from death to life, will come out of judgment. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. And it is because his word is the very word of God. So we don't know how long Jesus spoke. Maybe one hour, or two hours, or perhaps three hours. But by the time he's finished, no doubt, uh, Simon is, is 
you know, done washing his nets, he's ready to pack it all away and get ready to go and get ready to maybe get some rest as he's getting ready to go out fishing again the next, this coming night. But look at what happens. In, in verse 4, Jesus, it says, when he had finished speaking to Simon, he, speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus tells Simon, go into the deep part of the lake in the middle of the day and let down your nets for a catch. Let's think about this command that Jesus gives to Peter. First of all, it's tremendously out of place for, for Jesus, a carpenter, to be telling Simon, a lifelong fisherman, what he should do with, when it comes to fishing and his job. That would be like Tom Hubbard coming to my university and coming into my office and saying, oh, Joshua, you're differentiating this equation way wrong. You, you are marking those papers way too easy. You messed up on your computer code here. I'm going to fix it for you. Then he comes and sits down and types away. Or even worse, if I go to his place and I say, Tom, come on, you're handling this shoplifter with gloves. You've got you to gotta take his arm and then wrench it back here and slap the cuffs on. And, do you even use that cuffs? You do? Good. <laughs> no, I I'd probably mess it up. Peter was the expert. Jesus wasn't. Simon naturally would say, Jesus, if you want to use my boat as a pulpit, that's fine. You can do it. But if you're going to use my boat as a boat, I'm in charge. I'm the fisherman. So that it would naturally be very un, un, um, uncomfortable for Peter to listen to what Jesus had to say. Because this was his area of expertise. Second of all, what Jesus was asking Simon to do wasn't just something that could be done easily. These nets are not like little butterfly nets. These are honking, sometimes 100 feet long nets. They required two boats to bring them out and, and just put them out and, and to spread them across. It required him to unfold the nets that he had just washed and get them dirty again. And on top of that, it, it was not a sensible time to go fishing. Simon knew that in the heat of the day, the, the sun shining down on the water, the glare of the sun drives the fish down into the, to the deep part where you can't reach them with the net. The proper time to go fishing is at night, not now in the middle of the day. And so what Jesus asks Simon to do is totally doesn't make sense to him. It defies his, his understanding, his experience, his expertise, his logic, everything. How did he answer? Let's look at verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Simon calls Jesus master. Master here is, is just a common title of respect. It was commonly used of the rabbis in the synagogue and, and honor other places. It, it was like an honor, an honor title, but not necessarily a title of real submission. Simon says, we, we toiled all night. We took nothing. We failed miserably. There is not a fish in that lake, and if there is, I can't find it. He knew that the prospects of catching fish now were even worse. It was the worst time of day. It was the wrong location. He already tried and failed. He had just washed his nets. He needed help from his partners if, if he was going to do this. He was discouraged and tired and hungry, and no doubt his wife was waiting for him to come home and, 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 and play with the kids. He had every reason to disregard Jesus' command and not obey. But what did he say? Next he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. You can almost hear the, the hesitation and the reluctance in Simon's voice. It's like, well, let it down, but not for a catch. But he did it for no other reason than Jesus said so. He agreed to let down the nets. And then what happened? Let's look at verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Peter and his partners spread out these nets, and then as they began to haul the nets in, amazingly, they were full of fish. There were so many fish enclosed in the nets, the nets began to creak and twang and, and rip, and they could hear the, 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 the tremendous weight of these fish drawing their nets down, and they, they knew that if they didn't get these fish in soon, 
They're actually going to break and, and, and they're never going to see them again. And so they call in another boat. They signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Of course, the, the extra weight of the fish in the boat, you know, I don't know if it was capsizing the boat, if it was pushing out the, the, the pieces of wood in the boat, but, but regardless, they were beginning to sink. And these were not small rowboats. If you look on your bulletin, that's a fairly accurate picture of what a fishing boat would have looked like in the first century. They were about 27 feet long, 7 feet wide, 4 feet deep. They were large boats. If you remember, there, there are other parts in the Gospels where Jesus and all his disciples, and presumably a crew, can fit into one boat and, and go across the, the lake. So they're big. And yet, even these large boats were not large enough to hold the catch of fish. Verse 9 and 10 says that Simon and his partners were astonished. They had never seen a catch of fish like this. They probably wondered if there were even ever that many fish in the lake. In all the years of experience that they had fishing, and, and among them, they probably had dozens, dozens of years of experience. They had seen lots of big catches, but they had never seen a catch that, that, that was as big as this. It defied every natural explanation. It truly was a miraculous catch. This catch has a lot of practical lessons in it for Peter and for us. So before we move on and talk about its real meaning of the catch, let's talk about ways in which we can understand this and apply it to ourselves. One application is to notice that the ability for Jesus to do the miracle is not dependent on Peter's faith. It's not like, Peter, you have enough faith, and your faith is so great, I'm going to do a miracle that's equally great. It, it, it's not like that, right? How much faith did Peter demonstrate here? You know, an, enough for like a, a minnow or a little like a little trout or something, but, but not enough for this big catch. There are false teachers who claim that Jesus will do something if you have enough faith. And if, and if, he, if he doesn't do it for you, it's because you didn't have enough faith. But Jesus doesn't work that way. That, that's not how he works in this passage. The greatness of the miracle is dependent not on the faith of Peter, but on the power of Christ. Another application is that uh, this passage shows Jesus is Lord over all of life. When Jesus got into Peter's boat, whose boat was that? It was Peter's boat, right? That means... He was going into Peter's workplace, where Peter worked. This was not the synagogue. This was his boat. In that environment, even though it was Peter's boat, Jesus still commanded Peter and told him what to do. He still exercised authority over Peter's life, even in his own boat, in his work. So we cannot say that Jesus is Lord for only a few hours in the week. Jesus, being Lord, is Lord over all areas of our life, over our time, our money, our family, our job, our recreation, our relationships, over all. He intrudes into every bit of it. He is with you in your job. He is with you as you relax at home. He is with you as you go on the internet or as you look at Facebook or as you write posts on Facebook. He is with you as you teach your children, as you do your homework, as you drive your car, he is Lord, and being Lord, there is no compartmentalizing Jesus. But that's totally what the world expects for Christians to do. Many people say, it's, it's, a, it's your business, your private religious life is your business, but leave it at home or leave it at church. Don't bring it to work, don't bring it to school, don't bring it into the public sphere. But, but this passage teaches that our faith is not limited to what we do, within the synagogue or within the church or with what we do within our, our context on Sunday. But Jesus' lordship extends over everything, over everything in our whole life. Another application that, that, that is here is that Jesus blesses obedience to his word. Even though his command made no sense to Peter, and Peter knew what was better, but because Jesus told him, he obeyed. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. As our culture becomes more and more post-Christian, the things that we believe and the things that the Bible teach will seem crazier and crazier. These days, a biblical understanding of marriage, biblical roles for men and women, biblical understanding of gender, biblical understanding of creation, and so forth, all, all of these things that the Bible teaches are ridiculed by the world. And there may be times when we have to decide, are we going to obey what God says because he said it? Or are we going to bow out to what the world expects? The same thing is true when it comes to facing circumstances in our life. Things happen that we don't like, or we don't understand, or that are painful. We may lose our job. We may experience sickness. We may fish all night and come up with nothing, or fish all year and come up with nothing. There may even be uh, conflicts or trials or fractures in our church. How do we interpret this? We have to realize God knows best. After a night of no fish, there was a great catch. And then even better things after that. A final application is to notice that fishing is really a great illustration for all of life. I don't fish a whole lot. But uh, whenever I do, I, I rarely catch anything. Once, my uncle took me to a place and he said, I guarantee you 100% money back, there's fish in this stream. And then he took his lure and then dropped it in and instantly he had a fish. Okay, this looks good. And so I tried and I tried and I tried and I was there for about two hours and I couldn't catch a single thing. He came back, oh, you couldn't catch anything? Got one again instantly. I didn't know where it was. You know, sometimes the most experienced fishermen can cast their net and come up empty and the novice can pull one in and it's right there. And then it's the other way around. We cannot make fish come into the net. That, that's true for fishing. And it's true for life. We can't, we can't cause people to put their faith in Christ. We cannot do any of that. But we cannot even make ourselves find a job. We cannot make our children believe in the Lord. All we can do is cast a net and then trust that God will bring in the fish. This is especially true in evangelism. We don't know who's going to receive God's word. We don't know where they're going to be, and what time they're going to be, and when they'll be there, whether we're going to meet with them. We, we just go. When Elijah and I, or, or John, or Angel, or anybody goes out to Stewart Park, we don't know who's, who's going to be there. We don't know if we share the gospel or give out a tract, whether they're going to respond. We have, um, our church has these advertisements on the back of the bus. We don't know who is going to see the advertisement. We don't know whether they're going to be useful or they're not going to be useful. We just put it up there, casting our net, trusting that God will bring in the fish. When you share your faith with your coworkers, when you have a conversation about Jesus with your neighbor, there is no guarantee you're going to catch a fish. All you can do is cast the net. Sometimes we cast that net again and again. It just seems to come back with nothing. It can be discouraging. But we keep casting the net. Not because we're especially skilled at casting the net, but because we plead with Jesus, Lord, build a net. This is true for, for those of you who are parents. This, this is true for your kids. You discipline your kids. You try to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But ultimately, what, what we are doing is we're just casting a net. And it is Jesus who needs to bring them in and save them for his kingdom. So th this is um, obviously a, a testimony to the divine providence and sovereignty of God. Right? But, but it doesn't mean that we can, because it's God who brings the fish in, we can stop casting our nets. Jesus' sovereignty over this fish did not negate Peter's responsibility to push off from shore, get out the net, throw it into the water, and try to get the fish. In the same way, we have to use the means that God has given to us in sharing our faith, in being a bold witness to our neighbors or to our coworkers, caring for our children. Effort is biblical. 
God is sovereign. He fills the nets, but we are responsible to labor diligently. And when God fills the nets, He receives all the glory. Amen. So apart from these practical considerations, which are very beneficial, but they are not ultimately the point of what this miracle is about. What is ultimately the point of Jesus trying, uh, what is the point that Jesus is trying to get across in this miraculous catch of fish? Like many of Jesus' miracles, this miracle is, is a parable. It's, a, it's to teach Peter something. So what is he trying to teach Peter? First and foremost, Jesus is using this miracle to teach Peter about himself. To show Peter, through this catch of fish, through something that Peter really knew a lot about. Showing Peter the divine character, the, the divine person of who Jesus is. Jesus had already demonstrated his miraculous power. He had healed Simon's mother-in-law, just the previous chapter. He had changed water into wine. He had cast out demons. But these miracles didn't communicate to Simon in the same way that this catch of fish communicated to him. This miracle was even more obvious, even more poignant and powerful to Peter. And through it, Jesus was showing Peter who he really is. He was using this catch of fish to reveal to Peter Jesus' identity and his attributes as the Son of God. So how does this catch reveal that Jesus is God? Let's think about that. First of all, Jesus knew where the fish were. That's the, that's the key part of fishing, isn't it? People will have sonar and, and depth finders and all of these different doodads because they have, they're trying to find out where the fish are. Jesus didn't have any of that. How did he know where the fish were? It's because he knew he is the omniscient God who knows all things, who is in possession of perfect knowledge over everything. There is no limits to the, to the knowledge of Christ. Everything in the spiritual world, in human society, in the minds of people, even in the fish, in the sea, are under his divine knowledge as God. And, and this, is commonly, um, this is a common theme in Luke. In Luke 5, uh, the, the, the paralyzed man is healed. And, and Jesus says, your, sin are forgiven. your sins are forgiven. And as soon as Jesus says that, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they think to themselves, how can that man say that? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. We don't know what each other are thinking. But Jesus knew. Jesus had perfect knowledge as the Son of God. In Luke 22, Jesus told his disciples as they were getting ready to prepare the Passover, go into the town, you're going to meet a man carrying a jar of water. Follow that man and he's going to go into a house. Say to the people there, the Lord asks, where is the room that you have prepared? And they will tell you. He knew, he knew all of these things in advance. He had perfect knowledge. In Matthew 17, Jesus knew that Peter had to pay the temple tax. So he told Peter, go into the sea, catch a fish. The first fish that you catch, open its mouth. It's going to have a coin in it. The coin is going to be enough for your tax and my tax, go and pay. He knew. He had perfect knowledge. This is the knowledge that God of God, the knowledge of God. And apart from the self-imposed limits that Jesus put upon himself in his incarnation, Jesus possesses all knowledge of God. This is evident in this catch of fish. It's a testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, the omniscient Son of God. But knowing where these fish are, just knowing where they are, by themselves, is not enough, is it? Just knowing that they're there is not enough. Jesus not only knew that they were there, but he also commanded them to enter Peter's net. And this reveals another attribute of the divinity of Christ. He is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. And he is sovereign. He is the sovereign God with power and authority over everything. He can command the fish to enter the net, something that fish probably would not choose to do on their own. And the whole school swam into the net. His word contains divine power as the all-powerful God and divine authority as the sovereign creator. As God the Son, Jesus possesses this power, this authority. When he commanded dead people to rise, they rose to life. 
when he commanded terrible storms to be calm. They were calm. When he commanded, let there be light in Genesis 1.1, there was light. John chapter 1 verse 3 says that he created all things. Through him, all things came to be. Without him, there was nothing that came to be. And in Hebrews 1.3, it says that he sustains all things with the word of his power. This is the Jesus that commanded the fish to enter into the net. This is the same Jesus who is the word of God made flesh. The word who created all things with his voice and the same sovereign God who upholds the universe with his power and authority. You see, the miracle is, is not about fish. The fish really are inconsequential in Jesus' purposes. Ultimately, Peter even left the catch on, on the side of the boat. This miracle is about Jesus revealing to Peter who he is as the Son of God. Revealing that to Peter and then calling him to saving faith. This is why Jesus sat in the boat in the first place. This is why Jesus went out and, and called Peter, go into the deep water, let down the nets. He wanted to reveal himself to Peter as God in a way that Peter could see immediately and understand. And then how does Peter respond? Let's look at verses 8 to 10. It says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, who were partners with Simon. As Peter witnesses this miraculous catch of fish, he gets it. He understands what Jesus is saying. He comes face to face with the divinity of Christ. He understands through this miracle that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he is divine, and his attributes are put on display, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his authority. These thunder down on Peter, on his realization that Jesus is God, and in response, he falls down on his knees before Jesus, and he cries out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's not saying master anymore. He says, Lord. He beholds the majesty of the glory of God in Christ. And immediately he senses the proximity of his home. In proximity to the holiness of God, he senses the measure of his sinfulness and the weight of his own sinfulness. And, and being so close to God, it's like the Israelites, when, when, they were, when God was speaking to them from the mountain, they said, don't speak to us anymore, because we will die. That's how Peter felt. His sin pains him. It stung him. He begged for Jesus to depart from me. I am a sinful man. This reveals another attribute of Christ. He is the holy, holy, holy God. He is the same God that we read in, in Isaiah 6 in the call to worship, whose glorious train filled the temple, whose cre these, these magnificent creatures were crying out, holy, holy, holy. He was high and lifted up. His voice shook the foundations. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he was like Peter. He cried out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. In the same way, the holiness of God in Christ that was put on display before Peter's eyes drove Peter to his knees in fear. If Peter had any thought of his own righteousness, because he was a Jew, because he observed the, the Jewish customs, it was now brought low before Christ, and he confesses himself as a sinner before Jesus. This is the right place for Peter to be. This is exactly where Jesus wants him to be. This is why Jesus brought him out here. He brought him out here to show his glory to him so that he may bring him into this place of repentance. Peter would see Jesus as he truly is, the God the Son, and he would see himself as a sinful man, and then respond in repentance and saving faith. Now, how does Jesus answer Peter's confession? This is glorious. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus says to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
the, nearest, the nearness of God, makes sinners afraid. But Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. It's not that Jesus is downplaying his, his sin. He's not saying, oh, sit, Simon, you're a good guy. Rather, it's that Jesus will make a way for Simon's sin to be forgiven. If we remember Isaiah 6, the coal was brought from the altar and it touched Isaiah's lips. And in the same way, Jesus will cleanse Peter's sins so that he would not have to be afraid as he stood before holy God. And this illustrates the final attribute of Jesus' divinity in this passage. He is the holy, holy, holy God. He is the God who will judge all sin. But he is also the God of mercy, who forgives those who come to him in repentance. Peter is right. It is dangerous for a sinful person to stand before God. But that's why Jesus came. <coughs> sinners so that they can stand before God. And then after this, many years after this, Peter would write in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus is the mediator. He has come to draw sinners near to God. He brings sinners near to God by dying for their sins on the cross. And with his blood, he cleanses them. They are justified, they are forgiven, and they are saved. They do not have to be afraid as they stand before God. And in fact, he ushers them into the presence of God with confidence. This is a common theme in Luke's Gospel. We can see it all throughout Luke's Gospel. The one who humbly acknowledges their sin and repentance and comes to Christ in faith is the one who receives salvation. Just in, in the very same chapter, later in the chapter, Jesus saves Levi. He's a tax collector. In, in Luke 15, prodigal son, he's wasted his life, he's wasted his father's blessings. But he repents and turns back home and is welcomed. In Luke 18, the parable of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, they were both praying in the temple. The Pharisee is self-righteous, but the tax collector stands at a distance, bows his head, beats his chest, and begs God for mercy. And he is the one who is forgiven. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, he repents. He makes restoration to the people that he's wronged. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. This is... What Jesus has done for Peter, bringing him to an awareness of his sin, bringing him to a point of repentance, and then forgiving him. This is what we see all throughout the Gospel of Luke. When we look at ourselves in comparison to other people, we may look okay. But when we stand before the burning light of the holiness of God in the mirror of his word, what happened to Peter should happen to us. No one is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. And Peter's response is a pattern for everyone who will come to Christ. It begins with a realization of God's holiness. And in comparison to God's perfect holiness, my sin. That's the start of discipleship. That's the start of being a Christian. Have you drawn near to God in Christ? All who draw near to God in Christ, in repentance, he will forgive and cleanse. You will hear from the words of Christ, do not be afraid, because he has shed his blood for our sins on the cross, and he brings us to God. Amen. And that's not all that Jesus does. Look at verse 10. Look at the end of verse 10. Jesus continues by saying, do not be afraid, from now on, you will be catching men. Jesus doesn't just forgive Peter's sin and, and say, oh, don't be afraid and have a nice day. He, he mercifully declares, from now on, Peter, you will have a new occupation. You have been fishing fish, but from now on, you will be fishing men. You will catch men. Peter has been involved in the mundane task of just 
cash and fish for his worldly um, sustenance. But, but from now, he will partner with Jesus in catching people for the kingdom of heaven. And this is the plan that Peter had, for, that, that Jesus had for Peter's life. This is the plan for which Jesus called Peter. He wants to commission Peter to be an apostle. He wants to use Peter as a shepherd for the church. He wants to use Peter to catch people into the kingdom of heaven. This is uh, Jesus calling to Peter and to the other disciples. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I will send you into the whole world with the net of the gospel to catch people, to rescue them from the kingdom of darkness, to bring them into the kingdom of God, and to establish my church on earth. This is what Jesus is calling Peter to do. When the Lord saves you, he doesn't just save you and forgive you of your sins and, and that's it. He calls you into his service. Just like what we've been learning in Ephesians in our regular time with Pastor John. While we were enemies of God, dead in sin, God made us alive in Christ. And he has commissioned us in Christ to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 what happens to Peter is the same as what happens to us. You realize that you are a sinner, and Jesus offers you safety. But that's not all. He calls you to obedience. He calls you to participate with God in his work of catching people for his kingdom. Each one of you is uniquely gifted by Christ in some way to serve God in his work of catching people. He saved us. He saved you to catch men. Not, not to paddle around in the, shallow, in the shallow water for an hour or two, once a week. But to launch out in the, into the challenging places with him. Ready to cast the net. Trusting that God will bring people into it. And then drawing the net as God brings people into his church. Loving them, serving them, walking together with them. Working to build up the body as it grows into fullness in Christ. This is the calling for Peter. This was Jesus' calling for you and for me. How did Peter respond? Let's look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the height of their worldly success as fishermen. They're never going to see a, fish, a catch of fish. They would not expect that they would ever see a catch of fish like this again. And yet, Peter left it all to follow Jesus. He left his nets, he left his boat, he left this huge catch of fish, which was probably worth a lot of money for him, and he followed Jesus. He, he followed Jesus, not knowing what the costs would be, what sacrifices ultimately he would have to make, how Jesus would use them. Later on, Jesus explained, if you want to follow me, you have to, def you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. You have to leave your comfort. You have to leave your plans. You're, you're committing yourself to Christ for life. They did it. They did it. Their obedience to Christ, to his calling, is the outworking of their repentance. This commitment to Christ is what God calls us to. We are not saved by our commitment but saved people commit. Someone said that the price of salvation is free, but the cost of salvation is our life. And they're right. Just as he saved Peter, Jesus has saved us. Just as he called Peter into his service, Jesus calls us to follow him. Just as Peter left it all to follow Christ, Jesus requires of us to stand ready to obey him, to follow him where he leads, to leave the world, to leave our own plans and our desires, our security, our safety in the things of this world, and to follow Christ. What does that mean practically? I don't know. I don't know what God has planned for you. For some, maybe it means that you do leave your occupation like Peter. You become a full-time fisher of men. You catch people in a, in a formal ministry role. Maybe that's what God, means, God has for you. If God doesn't have that for you, for the rest of us, Jesus is calling us to follow him where we are, in our homes, with our kids, with our neighbors, in our workplace, in our jobs, in our recreation, among our friends, in our church. All these contexts are venues 
for our commitment to Christ to be lived out and our obedience to Christ to be lived out. Maybe commitment to Christ's calling for you means committing yourself to invite your neighbors over to, to your house for dinner a couple times a month. And then invite them to church and share, share your faith with them. Maybe commitment to Christ's calling for you means committing yourself more fully to his church. Giving up some of your time to be with God's people. To walk with them. Life on life. To build them up. To get to know them in a deeper way. To commit to praying for them. To encourage them in the Lord. Maybe that's what it means for you. Maybe you feel, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for any of that. Well, that's okay. Maybe commitment to following Christ means committing to meeting with a, a, a more mature brother or sister who will help you grow in your faith to, to the point where you are ready to go out and preach the gospel, even just a little bit, with your friends or with your coworkers. Our world demands commitment. You know, we, we, we can't get a whole lot without committing for like a three-year contract. But Peter shows us what's really important. He, he left all to follow Christ. And how could he not? How could he encounter Jesus, God in human flesh? How could he be confronted with the reality of his divine person, see the glory of God the Son, see his divine knowledge, experience his power, see his sovereign authority, his holiness, taste his forgiveness and mercy, hear him say, do not be afraid, and then just leave? How could he not obey after seeing and beholding the glory of God in Christ Jesus like he did? In Isaiah 6, we're back to Isaiah 6. After Isaiah's lips are cleansed and his sin is atoned for, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? What did Isaiah say? Here I am. Send me. In response to beholding the majesty of God, in response to the forgiveness of God that he receives, Isaiah accepted the Lord's command and he went to spread his word. And the same thing for Peter. When he beheld the glory of God in Christ, he brought, Christ's glory brought into keen awareness his sin. And, but then Jesus forgave him. And he accepted Jesus' commission to follow him as a catcher of men. We know the life of Peter, he had ups and downs. He had ups and downs. But at the end of his life, he testified the glory of living for Christ. In 1 Peter 5, he wrote, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What happened to Peter is what happens to us. You have a sense of the glory of God. You realize you are a sinner. You realize there is a Savior for sin. You don't need to fear. For Christ has taken the wrath of God on the cross for you. He calls you into his service and then life changes forever. Choosing to preach on Luke 5 was not easy because for me and maybe for some of you often feel discouraged in my walk with Christ. Maybe you feel like you failed or you're discouraged, you're depressed. You need not fear. Christ says from now on you will catch men. Make this day a from now on day. And tomorrow too. From now on, look upon Christ. Look at his glory. Behold him in the light of his word. See him as the son of God, the omniscient God, the omnipotent God, the sovereign creator, the holy God, the merciful God. This God has washed away our sin with his precious blood. He has absorbed the wrath of God in our place. And he has clothed us in his perfect holiness. And now, is calling us to catch men with the gospel. Will you go? Will you answer his call? Will you commit your life to following Christ? 
Will you join me in recommitting your life to following Christ and living for His glory? It's fitting that we come to this passage at the beginning of the year. How are we going to live this year? Ask the Lord, Lord, in this year, reveal Christ to me in your word. Lord, in this year, make me aware of my sin. Give me a feeling for the perfect forgiveness I have in your blood. Commit yourself to following Christ. Keep casting the net. Keep beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And keep following Him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, Lord, we thank you for the glories of Christ. Lord, we, we, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and, and we worship Him. And Lord, we could have done better in, in, in bringing out your word, but what we have done, we have done. And I ask that you may bless this word to our hearts. Lord, may we consider how Christ has revealed himself to us in your word. Lord, the revelation of Christ to us in your word is no less real than the revelation of Christ to Peter in that miraculous catch of fish. We see you in your word. Lord, may we behold your glory. May we see our sinfulness in light of your holiness. May we marvel at your marvelous omniscient power and omnipotence and sovereign authority, your holiness. And Lord, the mercy that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, that he has taken our sin away, that he says, do not fear, that he has released us from fear and brought us into the kingdom of God, and that he is calling us to live our lives in obedience to you. Lord, may today be a from now on day for me and for these people here, that we may live our lives in submission to your calling as disciples. However that looks like in this place and for these people, may we do it in obedience to you, in, in an outworking of our repentance and, and, and the grace that you have shown to us in Christ. For we ask it in his name. stand again together. Let's close our service with singing, All I Have is Christ. <laughs>